As, uh, as you know, once a month, the first Sunday of the month, the elders have commissioned me to uh, depart from our normal preaching through whatever t- you know, book I'm preaching through, which right now is the Revelation, and engage in a hot topic. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, a hot topic. You know, something that is percolating in the culture in which we live, and I've uh, chosen this morning to talk about the marginalized, and uh, I think we've all experienced this kind of splintering in um, the world in which we live. More, I think it's worse now than it's been in a long time in terms of just our ability to get along with other people, and those who, and I'll define what, what I mean by marginalized in, in just a second, but I think we need to get our arms around this because... If we as Christians, if we as the church don't have a take on this, uh, there's really no hope for the world. I mean, we of all people should go, well, here's the answer. And I'm hoping to, at very least, touch on that this morning. But as I started this sermon, I realized that this could go on and on. And so we're really going to just touch this at a very surface level. I'm going to read two verses that at first blush might appear to be in conflict with one another, although I don't think they are. And in these two verses, the, um, the marginalized person is the poor person. Uh, the Bible talks all about the poor, and that's who we're looking at here. But as we're engaged in this, we'll realize that that will expand into other things as well. So we're going to read Leviticus 19.15 out of the Old Testament, and then Matthew 19.21 uh, out of the New Hear now the word of God. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And now Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we as as your church, as the body of Christ, as your bride, would be granted the wisdom to understand and seek to resolve the issues in the world in which we live. And we know this, Father, that there is no brotherhood of man without the fatherhood of God. So we do pray that first and foremost in our hearts we would recognize that there is one major thing that will bring peace and unity on this earth, and that is for all of us to trust and bow the knee to the one who's created us. So we do pray, Father, that even in the discussion this morning as we seek to kind of understand how we should engage, that we would not lose sight of that, that peace among men is dependent upon peace with God through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I picked these two verses because somebody might look at these two verses and immediately say, well, there you have another contradiction in the Bible. You have one verse that says, don't show favoritism to the poor. Then you have another verse that says, sell all you have and give it to the poor, which sounds like favoritism. People will cry contradiction sometimes because they haven't really thought something out It is very common for people to kind of halt their theology with the supposed words and actions of Jesus incarnate. Maybe you've heard this. They'll say, well, never once did Jesus say this or did Jesus say that. And it's usually something that they don't want to hear about from the Old Testament. 
But what they don't realize when they're doing that is it's a tacit denial of the Trinity because the Son of God didn't become the Son of God at the Incarnation. The Son of God did not become the Son of God at Christmas 2,000 years ago. He's the eternal Son of God. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And so I'm saying that for us to understand that every word in the Bible proceeds from the Spirit who proceeds from Christ. All that to say, every commandment in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a loving, wise commandment of Christ himself. Well, hopefully having cleared that little error, we're still left with what appears to be at first blush a contradiction. Jesus wants this ruler to sell everything he has and give it to the poor and follow him. But in Leviticus, we're told, don't show partiality to the poor. Well, does he care about the poor or not? Now, the poor person here might just be one example of what we've come to call marginalized people, a marginalized person. That's a a fairly recent term. This this term marginalized started about in the 60s or something like that. And it basically means to marginalize somebody means to relegate them to an unimportant or powerless position. In the same way, you know, the margins on a sheet of paper, you've got the, the ends there. It's in the middle where all the action takes place, right? You write a report, you don't write things in the margin, every once in a while you might make a little note, but the margins are insignificant. And so what that term has come to mean is that there are certain people in the culture in which we live who metaphorically are in the margins, we view them as insignificant, unimportant. Now this term can be used to apply to any number of types of people. We see in the passage I picked this morning, it's referring to the poor. But it can refer to race. It can refer not merely to race, but to skin color. It can refer to religious affiliation, people who are identifying with a certain religion. It can refer to ethnic origin, educational status, childhood relationships, who you used to hang out with years ago can put you in a marginalized category. You could be marginalized because of your political opinions, your appearance, your disabilities. If you're elderly, you can be marginalized. I've come to experience that a little bit. People who are addicted can be marginalized. We see it in trafficking styles. People can wear a certain style and kind of like they walk in and they look as they're wearing a certain type of clothing and you're like, no, it's not going to work. We have, even to this day in India, caste systems, right? Social hierarchy. You don't marry out of your social hierarchy. You don't go up, you don't go down. You stay there. And on and on, right? So there's just a wide variety of people who can fall into the marginalized category. And though the term is fairly new, the world and history is thick with marginalized people. The idea is not new. Marginalized people actually can be the majority, depending upon who's drawing the lines and uh, where those lines are. You've heard of the 1%? You guys familiar with the 1%? 
That refers to those you don't know. That refers to the 1% of the people who are said to have all the money, all the property, and all the power. 1% changes every now and then in terms of who's in it, but you have the 1%. The Occupy Wall Street said their movement represents the 99% of Americans who've been left behind. So by that metric, the margins are almost the entire sheet of paper, right? So 99% of the paper is margins. So it all depends on who's drawing the margins and who gets to be in those margins. Different people draw different margins, which include a variety of things that the marginalized people are excluded from. So if you're marginalized, what's happening to you? A moment ago I said these types of people could be marginalized. Well, what happens to the marginalized person? Well, they find themselves often excluded from participation in social norms. You're not allowed to be part of this, whatever it might be. Are you excluded from the economic benefits of those who are not marginalized? People who are marginalized sometimes don't have political representation. Our people who are marginalized don't get the same justice as those who have good legal representation. People who are marginalized don't have general freedom. I mean, we're going to look in a minute at another marginalized person in the Bible who was a slave. So slaves were marginalized. And by the way, there are still slaves in the world today. And so they are marginalized as well. And what they are excluded from having is freedom. Now, having got that all behind us, in an effort to cure societies of marginalization, the world engages in solutions, right? The world recognizes marginalization. I mean, you can't listen to the news without hearing the term. Okay, what are we going to do about it? How do we fix this problem? I didn't, I didn't hear what you actually said, but I'll ask you later. Now, some of these solutions that the world offers, some of them seem reasonable. Some of them are violent. Some of them may be necessary. Some of these solutions have made things worse. Some of these solutions have a temporary benefit, like this, this way that they're going to try to cure this. The Jews, for example, were marginalized in Europe in the 30s, resulting in a world war among other things. The blacks were marginalized in antebellum America, resulting in a national bloodbath, a war that killed more Americans than every other war we had put together. The, uh, the Bolsheviks felt marginalized by the monarchy leading to the Russian Revolution. The French citizens felt marginalized by the French aristocracy, resulting in the reign of terror. So you see all sorts of people feeling marginalized, and then we see the way the world kind of handles the marginalization. Now, there are various opinions on what forms legitimate efforts at ending marginalization. I, I'm not, I, don't, I can't this morning give every possible conceivable answer to how do we deal with this. Suffice it to say that non-Christians, the world's effort at eradicating marginalization inevitably calls on the darkest traits of humanity. The types of revolution people feel are justified to exterminate marginalization appeal to things within us like anger, vindictiveness, spite, pride, and, and the cruelest passions 
of the fallen race in which we live. The, the way people have responded to being marginalized, they get whipped up into a frenzy. And you can get them to do almost anything because they, are, they have been oppressed. They're victims. And you fuel the fire, and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And you can get them to do God-awful things in order to deal with their situation. It becomes a very short trip down the stairs where you kill not only the czar, but his entire family. Just march them down the stairs and shoot them. What kind of hatred has to happen, has to be there, in order for that type of thing to take place? It is a hot topic. You As I was writing this, I could feel the steam coming off the paper. What we're dealing right now is something that appeals to the darkest of this fallen race. And I'll tell you something, the world doesn't seem remotely interested in a Christian approach to the problem. I'm not going to hide the answer. I mean, and I, it was in my prayer, and that is, there is no brotherhood of man apart from a fatherhood of God. It's just not going to happen. Every solution is going to fail. Well, maybe, maybe there's a long game. Maybe people are going, well, yeah, things are horrible, but we've got this long-term plan in order to make things better. But as far as I could tell, the movers and the shakers of these people who are trying to set their marginalized constituency free are accomplishing just the opposite. Things aren't getting better. We talk about it all the time, but it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Every conceivable relationship among the marginalized and those who are not marginalized, whoever they might be, and not only those two, but the marginalized and other marginalized people is getting worse. All those relationships are getting worse. I would argue that in the last hundred years, things are worse now than they've ever been in terms of just the unity. I mean, in the, in the 30s, there was, everybody was brought together because of the Depression. And then in the 40s, we had a war. And in the 50s, you know, we had Elvis. I'm just kidding. And, and then, yeah, Elvis Presley. And then in the 60s, you know, 60s things began to fall apart, but not the way they are now. I mean, we had the Civil Rights Movement going on, and there was some good and some bad in all of that. But right now... Whatever we're doing, whatever we're trying to do in order to solve the problem, we're making it worse. The tension is worse than it's ever been in the culture in which we live. Everybody seems to hate each other. And again, it's not just, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, at some level, we're all marginalized from God. And so, you know, I, everybody feels that. But even within the marginalized people, you know, the, uh, the, the, the gay people are angry with the transgender people. They don't... Okay, thank you. <laughs> it is true. That's why I just said it. <laughs> 
So it's not just two groups of people. There's a, there's a tension brewing. All right, so what is the Christian approach to this? I'm talking all about the fact that we have kind of the world has no answer. And again, I'm going to touch on this. I'm going to give you six examples here of the way I think we as Christians should approach or, or not approach this. And then I'm going to finish with an appeal to, to one of the smallest books in the Bible where we see a marginalized person and how the Apostle Paul is going to be dealing with this and what the strategy, at least surface level, should be. So how do we approach this? First of all, justified marginalization. We, we, even, we need to first decide whether or not the marginalized person is actually marginalized in a genuine sense. For example, convicted criminals in prison might feel marginalized because they don't have free access to society. And, and you might, that might sound ridiculous, but that is happening in the prison system. You know, they have their own kind of unions that they put together, and they have their own demands because of certain things they feel are unfair toward them. And so they may feel marginalized, and their marginalization actually has literal bars and literal walls. And yet, in these cases, their marginalization is a necessary consequence of criminal behavior. So I'm having a hard time getting behind you in your claims of being marginalized because of the damage you did or the person you killed or the society, you know, whatever the crime was that you committed. But another example might be drag queens. Drag queens might feel marginalized because they're barred from the children's section of the public library. I don't know if you guys realize this. I mean, they are, you guys know what a drag queen is? Well, I'm not going to bother explaining it. (laughs) But But they are targeting the libraries, and the children's section, and they're doing readings and dances and stuff. I, I have a hard... If, 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 the thing is, they're not even being barred right now, but if they get barred, they're going to go, oh, you're marginalizing me. And I have to say, I think that's justified marginalization. I mean, not to be mean-spirited about it, but they probably belong in prison. This, not too long ago, would have been criminal activity. I, what parents are bringing their children to this event? I mean, it's just astonishing to me. Anyway, so we have to kind of figure out, is this really a marginalized person or not? Secondly, unholy alliances. We have to be aware of unholy alliances. And this is, a, alliances. This is one of my biggest concerns right now as a pastor, as a, as a father, the Old Testament, the Israel was often tempted to covenant with surrounding nations because it seemed practical, it seemed utilitarian. They, they were God's chosen people. They were surrounded by other nations, and sometimes they'd be like, we need to team up with this other nation because it makes sense for us to work together in order to deal with that whatever that other thing might have been. And God continually warned them against that. We read in Exodus 34, 12, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, 
lest it become a snare in your midst. Paul basically gives the same message in the New Testament, but he gives it this way. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? This idea that we're going to work together. We've seen it happen even in political level in our own nation where we covenant with some country because it seems to make sense to work with them against a common enemy. And then 10 years later, they're using our weapons to kill us because we really haven't thought this out. Now, don't get me wrong. There may be emergencies that call for immediate collective action. And I don't, so don't mistake what I'm saying here. If someone's hit by a car or is bleeding to death on the street and somebody says, I want to help, you, you might not immediately go, well, I need your statement of faith. Right? So you take care of that situation and you've got an emergency situation. But it is a matter of concern when I see Christians so immediately hitch their wagon to organizations that are ostensibly helping the marginalized. You need to be careful of who you're associating yourself with, who who you are yoking yourself with. Here's what I, I just be honest, this is what I do. I'll I'll look at this and I'll see what, what people who I know, people who I care about, people who I love, and I'll kind of go, they're kind of promoting this organization. And I'll do some research about that organization. I'll go, well, what does, what does this organization, what's their end game? What do they want? And sometimes, as you're doing their, the research, you realize they're being very cryptic and ambiguous about what they want to achieve as an organization. But other times, it's black and white. They will, they will, it, you know, our goal is to disrupt the family unit. Our goal is to undo the political system in this country and turn it into something else. I mean, they have a plan. And then I'm looking at people I know who are believers who are going, well, I'm signing up because we have a sliver of ethical similarity. And you need to be careful not to associate with that. And next thing you know, what's coming out of your mouth and what is subduing your mind is that darkness that you've signed up for. So we need to be careful that we don't engage in an unholy alliance because we seem to have one little similarity with somebody when the dissimilarities are devastating. Proverbs 22, 24 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be careful who you team up with. Even if you think they've got a noble quest. That leads kind of to my third point here, and that is don't be governed by anger. And this may be the more um, applicable within the Christian community because I think it's very easy for us to get angry. I mean, we look at, you know, the marginalized person And it's not uncommon, and I've heard Christians say, well, the marginalized people in our culture have flat-screen TVs, cell phones, and their biggest problem is a high-fat diet. You know, and then you get all mad, right? And you get angry. And we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be governed by anger. 
Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible does talk about a righteous indignation. There is a place for that. Jesus got angry, right? He turned the tables because they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. Matter of fact, that's not the only time Jesus got angry. When, when Jesus perceived the hard-heartedness of those by which he was surrounded, we're told that he became angry. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul writes to us. He says, be angry, but don't sin. So there seems to be this possibility of an engaging in a righteous indignation where we're not at the same time sinning. There's a place for that. But I think we need to be very careful here. We need to be careful that our anger is tempered. Is it really a righteous anger? Are you angry because of something that happened to you? Or are you angry because God himself is offended? Because even Jesus, in his anger, was angry because his father's house was turned into a den of thieves. I mean, Jesus governed his own betrayal. I mean, Jesus was, is the one who orchestrated his own betrayal. So it wasn't the fact that he was offended. It was that, interestingly enough, it's that the Father is offended and the Holy Spirit is offended that really offends Jesus. And so we need to be careful that I'm not upset because it's me. That I'm a, you know, I mean, David said, do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? Like his anger was because there was a hatred of God in the world in which he lived. And even then, when David said that, what did he say next? Test me, O Lord. Try my heart. See if there be any evil way in me. It's almost as if David is like going, I'm fired up. And then he realized maybe his own flesh was getting the better of him. And he's like, Lord, check my heart out a little bit here and make sure that I'm not going over the edge in terms of my indignation. It is neither Christian nor beneficial to anyone for a people to become an angry mob. I have to be honest with you, I don't get the mob thing. I, I mean, you know what I mean by a mob, right? Everybody starts beating somebody up or starts, I, I don't know, it's not something I can identify with, but I'm also, I went to a concert a number of years ago, and uh, there was a guy in our church who was playing at the, was it, what's that club in, Hollywood, that, the whiskey, yeah, the whiskey, and there's a guy in our church who was our worship leader, and he was playing at the whiskey, and my wife and I went, I have to say, I didn't quite feel like I fit in, but everybody in the room was doing this, and I just couldn't do it, everybody in the room had a black shirt, and I had a pink shirt on. Like I just, I, I, I'm not, I just don't get everybody doing it. It wasn't working for me. I, it wasn't going to be fun for me. I don't get the joining in, and I'm not equating the, that to an angry mob. I guess I kind of am. But I don't get that. It doesn't, I don't, but we live in a world where people become an ang- part of an angry mob, and we need to be careful that at some level, whether it's something we actually physically do or something that we're psychologically tempted to become part of, that we resist that and allow ourselves to be governed by love and wisdom and patience. James writes that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
We read in Exodus 23, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Well, so we need to recognize that the Bible's addressing our normal tendency toward carnality. That brings me to my fourth point, and that is the point of patience. I don't know about you, I would like to see things turn around now. I want rapid success. The world wants rapid success in terms of the way they address those who are marginalized, not thinking about the long-term consequences of their decisions. You know, in the Bible, right, God had promised Israel the land, right? So you got this promise of the land. But very interestingly, I think, God says, look, I'm not going to give it to you all at once. It's going to be incremental because if I do it all at once, the land will be laid desolate. If, you, if we do it real rapidly, the whole land is going to be destroyed. We read in Exodus 23, 30, little by little I will drive them out, that's the evil people in the land, from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Earlier in that passage, he says, in order that the land will not become desolate. Oh, you know, I could, I'm sure there are people going, hey, we want the land, we want it now. Because if I give it to you now, if, if I give to you right now what ultimately I'm going to give to you, you're going to ruin it. It's going to be ruined. There is a common story structure called the hero's journey. I don't know, any of you heard of that? People in literature, the hero's journey. And like many literary formulas, this actually originates from the scriptures. Probably, probably you know, Jonah and the great fish is the first reference to the hero's journey. And uh, what the hero's journey formula basically says is that you have a hero and the hero gets swallowed up somehow, whether by a fish or a dragon or something like that. So the hero seems to have lost, Right? Story is over. This morning, as I was going over this, I realized that it was also in, um, it was a movie that came out a few years ago called um, Men in Black, where they actually use this, right? Remember the, there's, I don't know if you guys saw that movie, where he gets swallowed by the dragon. He literally gets swallowed by the dragon in, the, in, in a modern, so this is one of those formulas that people use and use and use. But in the hero's journey, even though the hero seems to have lost, he's, not, he's in the dragon, but he's not dead. He's in the dragon, and he's still got his sword. Or in the case of Men in Black, a laser gun or something. And so the dragon appears vital. The dragon appears unaffected. The dragon seems to have won, and yet the hero is within the dragon, cutting his way out of the dragon. That dragon wants to look healthy, but in his bowels, something is evil is being attacked from the inside. Now, of course, and let's not lose this, the ultimate hero, the one that Jonah and the fish actually pointed to, is Christ himself. And what, and what was Jesus swallowed by? Swallowed by death. And from death, death itself is destroyed. You understand, he's devoured, he's, he's in the bowels of death. And every, all the people closest to him, right, they're going back going, wow, I guess we lose. 
but we realize that death could not hold him. I mean, that's the, talk about the hero's journey. The ultimate hero is the one who's conquered our greatest enemy, the death of death and the death of Christ. But we have to recognize this. We are called as Christians to imitate that. We're, we're called to imitate the way Jesus actually engages, right? We are ourselves called to die, that we might be raised with him. You see, his gospel may appear devoured by a sinful world, but that gospel is cutting away at sin and death. When you open your mouth, when you live faithfully, you are inside, as, as, as dark as this seems, as this world seems, when you are proclaiming that which is good and right and true, your sword is out and you are cutting away and there is the long, talk about the long game, that's the long game. The long game is that dragon, his days are numbered. So even if you feel swallowed, don't give up on that. Keep fighting. The, the promise is a sure victory. We may get immediate results doing it some other way. But immediate results are often shallow and they're often very temporary. They're not the kind of results that have eternal benefit. Fifth, partiality. As our opening verse indicates, we are to avoid partiality. There was no contradiction between Leviticus and Matthew there. Jesus is talking about the idea that we should care about the poor, that we should somehow engage to those who are genuinely disadvantaged. Those, I mean, you know, I, I use the word marginalized and maybe we scoff at it. There are people in this world who find themselves in that capacity. And, um, you know, and I'm not saying this for you to go, hey, way to go, Pastor Paul, but I also feel like I want to provide a good example. My entire life, my entire adult life, for the last almost 50 years, I probably have not gone one month without either working with the homeless or the orphans or the widows. And I'm not saying that for you to go, hey, way to go. I'm saying that because I think we all need to recognize that God has called us. This is pure and undefiled religion in the face of God to care for widows and orphans in their distress. We are called to do that. So this idea that we're going to scoff at it and not care and Oh, marginalized, smarginalized. That's just not the Christian disposition. Again, like I said, we need to determine what is real and what is not and so forth. But there's no contradiction between the words of Leviticus that, that there should not be partiality. When somebody walks into a church, James teaches, if they have a lot of money, don't treat them better than people who don't have any money. You've got to treat everybody the same. If there's a poor person and they're guilty in court, they need to go to jail. Rich person, they're guilty, they need to go to jail. You don't show partiality. You might, you might argue for equal in opportunity, but you do not argue against the idea that things need to be just. Because that is going to breed resentment within the culture in which you live. And people feel it. You, whether it's in a courtroom or whether you're applying for a job and you're like going, I'm more qualified than that person. But for some other reason, they're going to get it. And it's not because they're better at the job. 
That is being partial. That's not, you know, you don't, you don't seek to endorse equality of outcome. You might endorse equality of pursuit. Hey, everybody walk in the room. Everybody apply for the job. Everybody gets their day in court. But you don't. What the, what the scripture seems to be indicating here is you don't show partiality. What is just is just. What is right is right. You know, our deacons, you know, and Larry prayed for our deacons in terms of the handling of the finance. Our deacons seem to be the primary ones who are concerning themselves with the needs of those who are either poor or have some type of economic difficulty. It's part of the mission of the church. But let me tell you this, in your, in your love and your care for others, you, it, it, you, don't just, you don't just throw money at them. I know people ask me oftentimes, you know, people out on the street panhandling, you give them money. I'll tell you, I don't. Let me explain. If somebody is, and this has happened, is in the gutter, and I, this has happened to me more than once, and they're out, I don't, I don't go, well, you know, you made some bad choices. You know, no, you, you do what you can immediately to help them. But that's different than somebody standing there with a sign going, give me money. And I know you feel good when you give them a $5 bill or something like that. That's not the way you approach it. You want to approach it? Get involved in a homeless shelter. Get involved in a ministry. Get involved where they're going. We have a way that we're going to help you get back on your feet. Use it wisely. Our deacons will meet with people. They don't just cut them a check. They sit down with them. And I'll tell you what, they do a better job than our government does. They sit down and go, what are your needs? What are your capabilities? What can we do for you? You know, here's what we're going to ask you to do. You need to allow that process to take place. I know in my own life, there have been a number of times when I've taken people under my wing, people who have needs and difficulties. But I don't just give them money, and I'll, here's the way I approach it, and I would advise you to do a similar way, and that is, you need help, I'm here to help you. But I'm going to determine how I help you. I'm not going to just give you money. I'm going to sit down with you and help you do your bills. Um, I remember the young man stayed when I was single. He's like, I really need help. I'm, you know, I'm... I don't have a place to work. I don't have a place to stay. I don't have... So I'm like, you know what? You can stay with me. So he comes in, you know, stays in my house. And I'll go, I'd go to work, and then I'd come back, you know, and he'd be on the phone talking to his girlfriend and just kind of hanging out, you know. It was before cell phones, you know, so kind of eating my food, talking on my phone, living in my house. And I'm like, okay, now I'm beginning to see why this guy is in the condition that he's in. So I remember sitting down with him. I'm going, you know what? I've decided you can stay here as long as you want. He's like, really? Dude. Yeah. <laughs> I just add some conditions. He's like, all right. I go, I need you awake at 8. I need you looking for a job by 9. I want you to look for a job until noon. You take one hour for lunch, and then you look for a job from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Then when you come home, if you're on the phone, I'll give you 20 minutes with your girlfriend. 
Other than that, if you're on the phone, it's got to be work-related because you're looking for a job. If you do that, you can stay here as long as you want. I didn't think that was unfair of me. He, wasn't, he didn't hang out too much longer. But you, you, you know, I'm not to be mean about it, but you don't let the lunatics run the asylum. If people are in trouble, they got in trouble because of some bad decisions or bad situation, and so you want to help them, help them. But don't help them just by kind of giving a shallow donation. You help them by involving yourself in a very thoughtful process that helps people get back on their feet. One of the missions that I worked in years ago before we started it here in Wilmington was downtown in L.A., and we had a whole process where you would come in. You had to, if you lived there for a year, we had you for a year. We prepared you for a job. We made sure that you had interviews before you left. You would go to those interviews. It was kind of like, you come in, you're in trouble. By the time you get out, you're ready. We'd help you find a place to live. That's the whole process. You know what? And some people, that worked great, and others it doesn't. Because ultimately, people need to make their own right choices. Well, finally, we need to practice a wise love. That we should not engage the poor in an unjust manner. We should not ignore them either. And it's like I just tried to explain, it's not a matter of just throwing money at them. It's a matter of getting involved in such a way that you really can help. Well, I want to finish up with a short exegesis of this little book in the New Testament called Philemon, Apostle Paul writing to Philemon. And I mention this because I do really think what we have here is somebody that we might view as a marginalized person, and that is a slave, Onesimus. So the Apostle Paul has two disciples, Philemon and Onesimus. One of them owns a slave, and the other one is the slave. And just so you understand what happened here, because I, what I, again, I don't have time to get into the detail, but I think it's really important for us to understand what Paul's endgame was in terms of how is this going to have a successful ending, because I think this is what we need to embrace if we want to see something good happen in the world in which we live. What was Paul's endgame? So he's got two disciples. One is Philemon, who had already been a disciple, then Onesimus, who apparently ran away and somehow cost Philemon some money. We don't know if he stole money or what have you, but he's a runaway slave, and somehow he develops a relationship with the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul leads him to Christ. And then Paul writes a letter to Philemon about Onesimus, about setting him free, about letting him go, And guess who's going to deliver the letter? Onesimus. I don't know about you. That that, that would be a nervous journey for me. I'm like, what is he going to do? Especially since I, you know, the Bible says he wronged him in some, some way. But I think what we have to, my point here, my main point is for us to understand the Apostle Paul's desired hope for the relationship between the person who is marginalized and the person who is not. And it's not merely to tolerate one another. It's not merely to forbear one another. It's not merely to create some political situation where you kind of grit your teeth and do it even though you don't want to. 
You know, I mean, you guys ever heard the term legislating morality? You can't, you ever heard, you can't legislate morality? You ever heard that term? Remember friends of mine telling me that. It's an interesting, it's an interesting phrase. Because in one respect, it's entirely true, and in another respect, it's false altogether. And here's what I mean. That law, if you're going to make a law, a law is only necessary because something immoral is happening. For somebody to say you can't legislate morality, in other words, you can't make laws against things that are immoral, you wouldn't have a law against stealing, because stealing is immoral. So the whole idea that you can't legislate morality is a thoughtless statement. But at the other side of that, if, if by legislating morality we're talking about making a law that changes people's hearts, that's a fool's errand as well. We can make all the laws we want, but making those laws will not change people's hearts. If anything, what happens is, I know I have to let you do this, and the fact that I have to let you do it is making me more and more angry at you. We need changed hearts. And that's the Apostle Paul's goal in this estranged relationship. We read it in the, toward the end of the letter in Philemon 15 and 16, Paul's deepest desire. He writes, for perhaps he departed for a while, talking about Onesimus, for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul volunteers to compensate Philemon for whatever he might have lost. He's like, I'm going to try to remove every, anything that's going to embitter you. You lost money because of this guy? I will, I will compensate you. And the Apostle Paul's funny the way he writes it. He goes, by the way, you owe me everything. Like He, he wasn't shy of going, look at I, I had a ministry with you that gave you eternal life, so I think you kind of owe me, but I'm not going to force you to do it. I want you to make the right decision. I don't, want, I don't want to force you to do it. I want you to make this decision voluntarily. Paul's not writing as if he's addressing two opposing people. He's writing as if he's a father addressing two brothers on how that relationship should unfold. In verse 14, we read this. But without your consent, he's kind of already said, he goes, I don't need your consent. I could command you to do it, but I'm not gonna. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. In other words, I want you, Philemon, to do the right thing. So I'm not going to do anything until I give you the opportunity to do the right thing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntary. You see what he's trying to do here? He's trying to foster in the heart of his disciples a proper disposition. I'm going to tell you, it's not always easy to do, right? You've heard the story, right, of the dad who's exasperated his child. And the dad says, you just sit there. And the child says, I might be sitting, 
on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> you know, this, you, you, you don't want, the, that's not going to work. That is not going to have long, that is not the, the sword of the spirit inside the, the bowels of the dragon cutting away evil. That's just itself spite. That's just itself evil. No. Now, there are times that a call for the sword is necessary to carve away at the outside of a dragon. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a pacifist. I think Hitler needed to be violently stopped. I think that was, there, was, there was a necessary conflict there. But so often, friends, those kinds of wounds, this idea of I'm going to outwardly solve this problem through coercion is like cutting off the head of a hydra and two nastier heads grow back. There's no long-term solution there. Lasting victory for the marginalized comes from within the dragon, and that is by the sword of the Spirit and the gospel of peace. Apart from that, there's no answer. It's, I don't think, just coincidental that in 1962, and I'm not, a, by the way, I'm not a big prayer in schools advocate, and I, I believe in prayer, but I'm like, prayer in schools, can you imagine the kind of prayers that there would be in schools if they had prayer in schools? I mean, I'm, I'm like, but in 1962, when they said no more prayer in schools, that was the beginning of the end. That was almost like the world saying, you're out. And we have watched what has happened since. So, so the answer is not somehow just adjusting the furniture. The answer is a new engine, a new heart. The answer is the gospel of peace. In order for us to have peace with one another, there needs to be peace with God where we can be addressed as brothers and sisters. In Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would not lose sight of the centrality of the message of the gospel, and we would recognize that as we observe the world, the world is just a reflection of the rejection of the hope of Christ. So let us not, Father, lose sight of that which should be central, and that is that peace with you comes through the blood of Christ, and may that gospel ever be preached in the pulpits throughout the land, throughout the world, that you might bring all to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.